Hi, folks. We are so glad that you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you have time, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners find us, and we read them for your feedback. We'd also love you to join in financially supporting the show if you are able. You can find out more at ourbodypolitic.com slash donate. We're here for you, with you, and because of you. Thank you. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. Election Day is rapidly approaching, and this week we take a look at one of the most hotly contested seats for the United States Senate in Wisconsin. After clearing a crowded field in the Democratic primary, Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes is trying to replace Republican Senator Ron Johnson. Barnes is the first black person in Wisconsin ever to be elected lieutenant governor and only the second black person ever to hold statewide office. If elected to the Senate, Barnes would join a small but notable group of black senators to serve over the last 233 years. Senate Democrats hope to pick up at least two more seats. Some Democrats favor abolishing the filibuster if they get those seats, which could affect issues like voting rights and abortion. And while protecting abortion access has become a rallying cry for Barnes and other Democratic candidates, the economy remains top of mind for voters across demographics and political affiliations. Johnson, who we asked for an interview but did not hear back from, currently leads Barnes in the polls for what it's worth. News reports indicate that Johnson could be preparing for the possibility of a recount given the close race. Financial disclosures show that he's made two payments for legal consulting to a law firm led by former Trump campaign attorney Jim Troupas. According to reports, Troupas allegedly played a role in the failed fake elector scheme after the 2020 election. And while Barnes may be his political opponent, at the state GOP convention in May, Senator Johnson called the media his main and the, quote, worst opponent anyone could have. I spoke with the lieutenant governor about what he thinks the stakes are in the midterm election. Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, welcome to Our Body Politic. Hey, thank you so much for having me. We are thrilled. And so you've talked about growing up in one of Wisconsin's most impoverished zip codes, being raised by parents who are union workers. How did that shape your desire to engage in politics at this level? Well, I'll tell you, that's what made me exactly who I am today is why I chose public service, recognizing the challenges that a lot of people around me face, but also what made the difference for me. When I talk to people on the trail during my time as lieutenant governor, or even when I was a state representative, it's important for me to make sure that every child growing up, regardless of their zip code, has at least the same opportunities that I had. Now, my granddad, he moved to Milwaukee after World War II. He got a job as a union steel worker. He was able to retire comfortably, and that's what set the foundation. And those opportunities are in short supply these days. It's harder and harder for people to get access to the middle class. It's harder for people to get ahead no matter how hard they're working. And that's because the deck has been stacked against them by out-of-touch politicians that are doing the business of serving their own personal interests while leaving working-class people behind. You became lieutenant governor by running a successful statewide campaign. Some lieutenant governors have to run on their own. Some are appointed by the governor. That was in 2018. So what did you learn about your fellow Wisconsinites and yourself from that race? So I was fortunate in the assembly to get to travel the state a whole lot. So I had some familiarity, but running for lieutenant governor gave me an opportunity to really connect the dots. It gave me an opportunity to be able to tell my story, 
my very Wisconsin story that is specifically a Milwaukee story and also connected to the lives of people, whether they were in Superior, whether they were in Wausau, whether they were in Eau Claire or Green Bay, all over the state. People are going through the same exact things. People are looking for the same exact things. People want good schools to send their children to. People want to be able to go to a doctor and not worry about a surprise bill. And people want a good job that puts food on the table. And these three opportunities to give folks a fair shot has been in decline. And people have had to unfortunately experience this in more ways than we care to count. We see the loss in manufacturing, good jobs being shipped overseas. We also see small family farms being squeezed out by large corporations. But the worst part about it all is you have politicians that subscribe to the politics of division. People who want to tell you that there's this urban-rural divide or their wants mean that you don't get as much when, in all actuality, we're all losing out because out-of-touch politicians that are in it for themselves and only in it for their big, wealthy donors while leaving working people behind. And it's unfortunate that a lot of the public falls for this stuff because when times are tough, like it's easy to blame somebody else or it's easy to feel like somebody else is responsible, especially if those who have the power to change things are the ones telling you that somebody else is responsible for your despair. So having started as an organizer, I always knew the importance of working to build bridges and to build coalition. And building that coalition, it wasn't specific to a certain region, certainly not specific to a certain race or religion. It was about bringing everybody together for a common purpose, for a common goal. And I felt the same way in 2018. We had a common goal, the need for our schools to be fully funded, the need for us to take climate change seriously, the need for us to create good paying jobs, the need for us to expand healthcare. And I, I shared the same message all across Wisconsin, whether it was in Milwaukee or whether I was in Platteville. You talk about the politics of division, but sometimes divisions between voters are what motivates them to vote. And so Wisconsin's abortion ban, originally passed in 1849, is currently being challenged in court, given the Dobbs decision. And you launched a Ron Against Road tour, pointing out differences with your opponents. So what are you prepared to do to protect abortion access? The Ron Against Road tour is holding him accountable, pushing him to answer to the people why he has taken such dangerous positions that compromise people's health. His position is way too out of touch and too extreme for Wisconsin. People in this state think that Roe should be the law of the land. And we've heard some heartbreaking stories on this Ryan Against Roe tour, some of our roundtables. And it is a complete disregard that people like Ron Johnson have for the health, the safety, and the life of women in Wisconsin, across the country for that matter. And we can end the filibuster. We can get two more seats in the U.S. Senate, get rid of the filibuster, and codify the right to choose and protect abortion access once and for all. Not only can we have a Democratic majority, we can have a pro-choice majority. And the pro-choice majority is what it takes to actually get the job done and to deliver to protect the health and safety of women all across this country. Now, here in Wisconsin, unfortunately, we do have that criminal abortion ban. And Senator Johnson's response was the women that don't like the laws of their state can just move. It is a callous position. It shows a lack of respect for the people he was elected to represent. And this November 8th, he's going to have to answer to those same exact people that he continues to turn his back on. Polls, for what it's worth, show you trailing your opponent, Senator Ron Johnson. And here's a bit of Johnson at the first debate. 
So if you want to reduce crime, first of all, you have to fully fund the police. And, of course, uh, my opponent is opposed to you know, fully funding uh, police budgets. Now, some black voters and other voters of color are choosing the candidate with a traditional tough-on-crime message, you know, alignment with the police. One example on the mayoral level is Eric Adams in New York. How are you appealing to voters of any race, but especially voters of color, who say crime is their top issue? Crime has been a top issue for me personally. I've lost friends to gun violence. I lost more friends than I care to count to gun violence in high school. And so when I say crime is an issue, I look at the whole of it. Like there's a real approach that we need to take. When I mentioned my granddad having you know, worked at A.O. Smith for 30 years after World War II, that's when jobs and opportunity were in abundance. And at that time, my granddad had a good job in a safe city. It was when those factories closed their doors and we saw the decline in opportunity is when we ended up with a rise in crime of violence because of desperation. People were left with very few options. And I look at the moment we're in now with rising poverty over the course of this pandemic. Six to seven million new people found themselves in poverty. I think it's important to explore that correlation, right? And if we don't have good paying jobs, if we don't have fully funded schools, if we don't have activities for our children, then things are going to be out of control. That's why we need to do everything we can to prevent crime from happening in the first place. But we can do the work to make sure police have the resources they need. In fact, our state budget increased funding for law enforcement, public safety initiatives. The American Rescue Plan Act allowed our administration to invest funding into law enforcement, public safety, and crime prevention initiatives. And a lot of people ignore the other side of it. Of course, you want to have the resources to respond to crime. But what makes us all safe is making sure we do everything we can to prevent crime from happening in the first place. That's what makes police officers job easier. And another big topic that some voters are really plugging into is basically the question of how viable our democracy is and what are the threats against it. And there's so many ongoing investigations into the aftermath of January 6th, the current Oath Keepers trials, et cetera. You have talked about democracy being on the line. What does it mean to you to run for office in a way that presumably protects democracy? Well, it's absolutely on the line. The very first plan my campaign released was a democracy and accountability agenda. And a part of that agenda is holding people who want to subvert elections accountable. People like Ron Johnson, who tried to send fake electors to the vice president. He's tried to send a fraudulent slate of electors to the vice president because he didn't get the election result that he liked in 2020. He looked every single voter in the state in the eye and he said, your vote doesn't count. Your vote doesn't matter. And on top of that, he supported a violent insurrection that left 140 officers injured. He said these people were patriots and he wasn't afraid, but he would have been afraid if they were Black Lives Matter activists. This has definitely been discussed in his text messages, what he said around January 6th. But some voters really like that. How does it make you feel that some voters actually, uh, that's a plus for a candidate? Well, yeah, the part about it is there are way more people that don't. And there are always going to be people that disagree with you, always going to be people who see things differently. But the reality is there are way more people here in Wisconsin and across the country who understand what it means to do the right thing, who understand what it means to protect and strengthen democracy, people who are committed to making sure that the future is much better than the past. And uh, I'm a glass half full person. Fortunately, in this regard, is much more than half full when it comes to the people 
who want to see our democracy thrive in spite of people like Ron Johnson who want to tear it apart. That was Lieutenant Governor of Wisconsin Mandela Barnes, Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate. Coming up next, foreign policy expert Hagar Shamali speaks to Firuze Mahmoudi, co-founder and executive director of United for Iran, about the youth and woman-led protest taking place in Iran. Plus, rising interest rates and home ownership with Michelle Singletary of The Washington Post and Brian Greene of the National Association of Realtors. That's on Our Body Politic. Welcome back to Our Body Politic. This week, we've invited a friend of the show, foreign policy expert Hagar Shamali, to break down what's happening in the uprising in Iran, which is being led by women and young people. Take it away, Hagar. Thanks, Farai. I'm excited to be here. We have entered the second month of protests in Iran, which were sparked following the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini on September 16th. She was killed while in the custody of Iran's morality police after being detained for allegedly wearing her hijab improperly. A hijab is the headscarf worn by some Muslim women to cover their hair, and in Iran, it's legally mandated. Protesters led by women are burning their hijabs and cutting their hair, calling for the end of the regime. To discuss, I'm joined by Firuze Mahmoudi. She's the executive director of United for Iran, which is an organization that fights for civil liberties and human rights inside Iran. Welcome, Firuze. Thank you so much for having me, Hagar. Thank you for joining us. We have seen protests in Iran several times before, but these feel different. What makes them different, or are there any aspects of these protests that have surprised you? For example, can you tell us about who's protesting and where these protests are taking place? These protests are absolutely distinct from the other protests we've seen in the last 40-some years since the Islamic Republic Revolution. This protest is unified in its voice in an unprecedented way. It is led by women throughout the country, and the main reason we believe it's so unified is because the intersectional perspective that they bring to the table. And uh, we're seeing the galvanizing of all the various ethnic minority groups in a way we haven't seen before. The Islamic Republic aims to, until now, fairly effectively divide the various ethnic minority groups in a way to pin them against each other. And This time we're seeing a common voice and everyone advocating for each other. We're also seeing a unified voice among various socioeconomic groups. Everyone's out in every facet of society continuously and it's geographically diverse. We're seeing parts of the country and small cities that we've never seen protests. Southern Tehran, where it's a poor area, we're seeing protests we've never seen before. Can you talk to us a little bit about the resistance to the mandatory hijab in Iran? given there is a long history of its resistance since it was initially imposed in 1983. Why does the Iranian regime feel so strongly about this issue? And why are they acting so threatened by opposition to it? So the Islamic Republic has intertwined its identity and its tools of oppression with the hijab. They began this shortly after the revolution. And the women of Iran were the bellwethers of saying that if the Islamic Republic is able to essentially oppress 
half of the population, then there will be no stopping them. And they were correct. So although this is about a physical hijab, it is much more than that. It is also about body autonomy, freedom of expression, gender equality, and having agency over one's life. So it's much more than that. And what I've also seen women say is, yes, I'm fighting to not have a hijab, but I'm also my protest is much bigger than that. It's about the old man on the street that cannot feed his children. It's about the woman who cannot say what she wants to say or go to a soccer stadium to watch a game. How does the Iranian regime use the hijab to control women? So Islamic Republic is a theocratic authoritative dictatorship, right? So they use this tool as a way to control people. They have been trying to oppress women throughout the country, and they haven't been able to because people want to leave, lead their life the way they want to lead it. So there's been this push and pull. There's a morality police that was created to control the woman many years back, and tens of thousands of people are arrested every year by the morality police as women are stopped because of their hijab. Can you explain a little bit about the morality police? Who are they? Who makes up the morality police? And what do they do exactly? The morality police was started during the presidency of Ahmadinejad. And there are government officials that, unlike the police, focus on holding order on the government ideology and beliefs. So they stop women on things that they claim not to be Islamic. And so their way of holding control, cultural control over the country, and it's very much tied into their theology and uh, ways they control the population. They stop folks if they listen to music in their cars, if they're out with people they're not married to, if they are at parties drinking alcohol, and if a woman's hair is out, for example. They look not proper in their perspective. The Iranian regime so far has cracked down on protesters, and they've used tear gas, batons, and live ammunition. And this is not generally surprising, since it's also how the regime has reacted to protests in the past. Where do you think it could go from here? Do you see the Iranian regime making any kind of concessions? How serious of a challenge are these protests to them? Um, Such a good question. Yes, what we're seeing is nothing new. This oppressive model that the Islamic Republic has is, has been prevalent throughout its existence. And the Islamic Republic more and more has its back to the wall, where this is literally the only thing that they're good at. This is the only tool they have. So they have put themselves in definitely a bind in the sense that there is such widespread and now consistent, as you mentioned, it's about to enter the second month, protest uh, that's throughout the country, and if not international, that if they don't give any concessions, I'm not quite sure how they would square that. On the other hand, if they allow women what they want to have, they no longer have the identity that they've built their entire regime upon. So I'm not quite sure how they want to address this, but either way, it's going to be extremely difficult for them to navigate what's to come. You mentioned how these protests are spanning different geographical locations in Iran and and across different socioeconomic backgrounds and so on. Can you tell us a little bit about the relevance or the significance of protests 
that have taken place and strikes at oil refineries, and also the fire that broke out at Evin Prison. Absolutely. I want to first start with talking about um, the various ethnic religious uh, minorities that are being harassed and the, and the diversity, as I mentioned. We are seeing protests throughout the country. And usually the pattern we see during uprisings is that the Islamic Republic targets the ethnic minority regions, the Kurdish regions, the Baluchi regions, and they crack down with immense force, killing many, many. And usually what that results in is for the rest of the country to, and Tehran and the other bigger cities to kind of slow down and for the protests to end. And we've seen the same kind of oppressive behavior this time. We've seen in Zahedan area, in Baluchistan, children being killed. And they killed so many people that they ran out of blood. And we've seen this in the northern region, in Gilan, city of Rash, throughout the country. And Instead of this slowing down the uprising, in fact, it fed it. And people were outraged and they came in the streets more and advocated for folks in other parts of the country. So everyone's advocating for each other. We all witnessed something. Perhaps it was one of the longest nights we have all witnessed in years, surely since the uprising. Evin Prison, which some people call the university of the country because so many student activists are there, all the political activists, essentially, that most of them are housed there. Journalists are housed there. The, the brightest and the boldest, the bravest of our country are housed there, right? This prison. Um, the prison was on fire and there were gunshots. All the roads around it were blocked. And Although we don't exactly know what happened, we know that people were killed and that family members of those inside the prison were outside. This is a way, again, it's perhaps a tool they're trying to use if they want to do other things to distract folks or they want to oppress people and scare people to keep them at home. But again, this time it's different because all of these oppressive behaviors are feeding the fire further instead of slowing people down. Which beckons the question, do you think these protests will continue? It's clear the Iranian government has decided to use a policy of indiscriminate violence in response to the protests. Absolutely. If they were able to quash these protests, what do you think that means for how Iranian citizens feel and how they will proceed in their opposition to the regime and to the mandatory hijab? So to answer your question about do we think the protests will continue, um, that's a million-dollar question, and every interview I've been on, I've been asked that question. And truly, we don't know. I've read a wide range of things, and I hear so many opinions, and I have my own. We see tweets that say, well, this may not be the last episode, but it's surely the last season on one hand, that we know is unprecedented. And we know, on the other hand, that the Islamic Republic, really, the biggest player is the Revolutionary Guards, and they have a grip of the military and of the government and of the Basijis. They have the arms, and they have so much control, and they are willing to use all of their force to stay in power, and they're incredibly corrupt. So all of those components make it difficult to know exactly how things go, will go. I know that it will be 
extremely difficult, that the Pandora box is open and there's no going back in some ways. One thing we're seeing with the young generation in Iran that's leading the protest is the incredible amount of clarity, bravery, wisdom, both intellectual and emotional wisdom. And it is both inspiring and incredibly heartbreaking because that level of clarity and bravery comes with not having a childhood. Essentially, they live under such an oppressive regime that they are wise beyond their years. This new generation of brave women and men essentially have decided that they have had enough, that they're willing to put their lives on the line in order to bring about change. They realize that the Islamic Republic will use its arms, will use guns, will use violence with impunity, and at the same time, they are willing to pay the cost with their lives, and they're going on the streets. So because of that, because we haven't seen that before, it's really hard to know how things will continue. And if they believe that they can make change, they're putting their lives on the line, they wouldn't be doing that if they didn't believe that they could bring about change. I believe those of us outside can support them most by also believing that change is possible and standing right next to them, not in front of them and telling them how they should lead and if uh, they should be on the streets, but next to them. If that's what they believe, I'm going to stand there and say, yes, change is possible. And we have seen in various global movements and uprisings that we don't see the change or the shift until it actually has happened. We don't know exactly how this is going to roll out, if this is a five-month thing, two-month thing, much longer. But the people of Iran and this younger generation have made it clear that they will not stand for this oppressive regime any longer. You're listening to Our Body Politic. I'm Hagar Shamali, bringing you a conversation on the Iranian protests with Firuze Mahmoudi. She's the executive director of United for Iran. That's a perfect segue to talking a little bit about the global reaction to these protests. We saw President Biden respond faster and more firmly than President Obama did when he faced anti-Iran regime protests in 2009. Biden expressed support for the protesters, and the U.S. moved quickly to impose sanctions on the morality police. And the U.S. also lifted other sanctions to allow for technology imports to work against the internet shutdowns being imposed by the regime. How much of a difference do you think these steps make? I think if we look globally, it's incredible the amount of support this movement has had. We've seen perhaps one of the most misogynistic, oppressive regimes on the planet being met with perhaps the biggest national feminist movement at the national level, if not the region. It's incredibly bold, and the message is incredibly clear. And I think because it's a woman-led movement, and it's so brave and so bold and so young, that we've seen this level of global reaction and support. We've seen it in every facet of society. We've seen it around athletes, actresses and actors, prominent individuals, citizens, musicians, the Iranian diaspora community has had incredible protests of hundreds of thousands of people globally. And me as an Iranian activist, I'm 
feel it day to day, the number of people coming to me, how can I help, right? So we're seeing that. And governments also are a huge part of this component. And we've seen so many governments stand up and say, we will not tolerate this. And I think the steps that have been taken to target the bad actors, to allow internet access and technology access inside the country, these are all important steps that all governments should, should take. Essentially, what needs to happen is creating protection and support and room for those inside to lead as they wish and magnifying their voices. That kind of support is always welcome. I think the line uh, for me is when the line is crossed from supporting the existing movement and giving it whatever it needs and asks for to do what it wants and to moving towards uh, diplomacy where there are ulterior motives and um, national priorities at play and making decisions based on those. And we, I have not seen that yet. So I think so far we're doing really great in our advocacy, both politically as well as global solidarity movements that we are seeing. Since many people are asking, how can people who are interested in supporting the Iranian protesters go about expressing solidarity with them? Some people are worried they may come off Islamophobic if they come out against the hijab, for example. What would you say about that and to them? Right. So when we see a protest and we want to support and advocate for it, we listen to what those individuals and citizens want, and we advocate and support that. And Iranians inside the country are advocating for body autonomy. They're not advocating for no hijab. They're advocating for no compulsory hijab, right? That's a distinction. We see protests inside Iran where um, women are together, some have covers and some don't, and they're all holding the, saying the same chants and holding the same signs. So um, I think if the message inside the country is very clear that they want change, they want to have body autonomy, and I don't think in any way anyone's supporting that message and a unified message and voice will be seen as Islamophobic. They will be seen supportive of body autonomy and agency. To support the movement, I think it's critical for us to continue talking about this, reading about this, sharing about this, small and big acts of solidarity, supporting those working on this issue, and keeping it in the media. I remember that I started United for Iran in 2009 after that uprising. And Iran was in the media every single day until Michael Jackson died. And then it could not get any more media coverage. So continuing this dialogue. And if they're on the streets, literally giving up their lives, we've seen 28 children at least killed by the government. These are teenagers who are going out and advocating for their rights. If they're doing that, we outside continue talking about it and knowing their stories and sharing them is paramount. Thank you so much, Firuze, for joining us. Thank you for having me. That was Hagar Shamali, foreign policy expert and host of Oh My World on YouTube, interviewing Firuze Mahmoudi, co-founder and executive director of United for Iran. Coming up next on our weekly roundtable, Sipping the Political Tea, we get into inflation and the housing market with Brian Green, Vice President of Policy Advocacy at the National Association of Realtors, and Michelle Singletary, financial expert at The Washington Post. You're listening to Our Body Politic. (laughs) 
This is Our Body Politic. We are keeping an eye on the economy as inflation continues, even as interest rates rise. One way for people to build wealth is through home ownership, but the recent rise in interest rates makes buying a home much harder, particularly for Black and Latino families who, on average, have a fraction of the wealth of white families. Joining me this week is Michelle Singletary, personal finance columnist at The Washington Post and an author of books on personal finance, as well as Brian Green. He's a writer and vice president of policy advocacy at the National Association of Realtors. Welcome back, Brian. Thank you. Great to be back, Farai. And hi, Michelle. Hi, thanks for having me. Yes, it is great to have you both back on. So let's break down the housing market. Interest rates were around 3% in January. Now, I, last summer, bought my first and only house at that 3%. And now rates are about 7%. And so to put this in perspective, today, the median asking price of about 500000 means that the home's mortgage payment will have increased by $861, plus or minus, which is like, Ah, anyway, Brian, what does this mean for people buying homes, especially for black and Latino buyers, potential buyers? Well, it means it's more challenging. It's it's, it's certainly costs a lot more. Um, And this is due to a number of factors. Of course, many are talking about interest rates today. But even going back to January, homes weren't very affordable for the average American and certainly not for people of color And at NAR, we've been talking about this and attributing a lot of this to uh, the underproduction of housing in this country for the last several decades. So that in and of itself has pushed housing prices up significantly in recent years and continues to have a disproportionate impact on people of color. And so the interest rates are, are just compounding that issue. And Michelle, black homeownership is lower than it was a decade ago. And Roughly as low as the 1960s when it was completely legal to have race-based discrimination in home buying. Can you kind of explain, like, what has shifted or not shifted for black homeowners and homeowners of color? Well, it's more like what has not shifted. So we have a number of things going on. First of all, we're still paid less, even when we have the similar qualifications. Our credit scores are still impacted by a number of things that are race-based because we sort of think of credit scores as being uh, neutral. But when a lot of the factors that go into those credit scores negatively impact Black and Latino families, that brings their scores down. And then you have still redlining going on. And so we have the totality of a whole number of things still impacting Black households. And I think it's astounding that the rate of home ownership for Blacks is still the same when discrimination for housing was still allowed legally. And I think a lot of people don't want to face that things are still in place that contribute to this disparity because we like to think we're post-racial, but we are not. There's still a lot of things baked into the system that we haven't been able to shake to increase that home ownership rate. Brian, a lot of your work at Realtors seems to involve looking at issues of housing equity. You know, in addition to the question of housing stock and how much housing is being built, how do you see the chessboard? What could help move the needle on on issues like this? Well, you know, first, I think, is the acknowledgement of the problem. You can't 
really unbake race from this cake uh, in terms of the current state of inequity. And you don't have to look too far back. I mean, just look at uh, the predatory loans just less than two decades ago. They were targeted to African-American communities in great part. And, you know, there was this narrative for a bit, and you still hear it, where, you know, people blame the borrowers or say the borrowers were trying to get over, or they say that lenders were pushed to make loans to poorly qualified or unqualified African-Americans or people of color. And uh, we know that's not the case. We know that oftentimes these were abusive products that were targeted to these communities, you know, from the community that I grew up in in New York, a middle-class African-American community where these were peddled as home improvement loans and other refinance loans uh, with really bad terms, often to elderly borrowers who are not sophisticated uh, about the different loan products that were available at that time. So that robbed people of wealth. And even with that recent history, many people don't recognize the need to take some action to remedy it with a recognition that these were race-based actions. So we need to look at loan products and approaches that remedy that. And now uh, there are many who are talking about utilizing special purpose credit programs. You know, these were programs that the 19... Uh, 70s Equal Credit Opportunity Act authorized, and HUD has also said that these are consistent with the Fair Housing Act, where you can design programs that address this uh, history. Certainly FHA, which has been able to make loans with flexible underwriting criteria, is looking at further steps it can take. You know, NAR and others have supported the reduction of the mortgage interest premium and the life of loan requirement all requirements that that make these loans currently more costly, Um, and down payment assistance. There are lots of states and localities that have uh, down payment assistance programs. There's nothing at the federal level, but more can be done to make consumers aware of these programs, to educate real estate agents on how better to utilize these programs. So these are a few things, but you know, beyond that, we also need to look at underwriting overall and look at whether underwriting criteria that you know was adopted decades ago uh, really makes sense in, in today's market. So we really have to stress test all the elements of underwriting to make sure it's fair and truly measures creditworthiness. You know, many people have been talking about how people's major payments, like rent, you know, is not part of their credit profile. So now some of the government-sponsored enterprises are looking at ways to better incorporate that in consideration of borrowers' creditworthiness. Well, Michelle, you know, there are different programs. I know that Washington, D.C. is a place where many black homeowners were displaced as as prices rose, and now it has this modest fund for first-time black homeowners. If you were looking to find out how to find lending programs, whether they involve race or not, that were good for you, how would you start your search? Well, actually, I would start with HUD. Um, I'm a big believer in the HUD-approved housing counseling agencies. I think they do an excellent job of assessing borrowers' ability to be a homeowner. Now, 
I say that because I'm a big believer in home ownership. I've actually owned a home since I was about 22. I only rent it one year of my entire adult life, which spans a long time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, three houses later. Um, and and so what I like about what they do is that it's just not enough to say give down payment assistance. We've got to look at the totality of the financial picture of the person because what we don't want is to increase home ownership rate than to see people being foreclosed out of those homes. And so when I work with folks, I tell them, go to a HUD-approved agency. They look at everything. They look at your credit. They look at how you handle your budget. And then they help you find a lender and program that is appropriate for you. But one of the first questions I ask people when they say, I want to buy a home is, do you have debt? Because that Mm -hmm. is the leading reason why lots of people can't hold on to their homes. Because even if that mortgage payment looks affordable on paper, if there are other demands on people's money, not just debt, but family obligations, that puts demands on your funds. So you get a house, but then you help to help Grammy and you got to help Peaches and you got to help a whole bunch of people, rightfully so. And that makes it difficult for you to hold on to that house. And so when we talk about increasing home ownerships, we've got to make sure that we are setting people for success. So it's not enough just to have a down payment program. You got to make sure that you teach people how to budget so that once people get in the homes, they can keep it and actually build up that equity over time that they can pass on to future generations. Tell Peaches to slow her roll. (laughs) 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 Brian. And and let me add to that because uh, there are other costs and expenses people have that folks may not take into account. And some of those are also borne disproportionately by people of color. So, you know, there have been some studies also that show that African-Americans paying higher um, property taxes in urban communities, as well as higher mortgage insurance and fees and and homeowners insurance. And so those things, of course, matter. But even in terms of getting into homeownership, we have a a study where we looked at... um, successful home purchasers by race and African Americans are making all kinds of sacrifices that white Americans don't have to make in order to buy a home. And so, uh, you know, all these factors add up. Even people who are successful in purchasing that home are sometimes buying trouble in the future because of, you know, past discrimination, economic circumstances that resulted from that. Or the context, you know, the the surroundings in which they live, where they're paying these higher taxes and other fees. You're listening to Sipping the Political Tea on Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. This week, we're doing a special roundtable on the housing market with personal finance expert Michelle Singletary of The Washington Post and vice president of policy advocacy at the National Association of Realtors, Brian Green. So, Michelle, given, you know, higher levels of college debt and lower equity, uh, any further thoughts? Yeah, I wanted to just talk about one thing that Brian just talked about is that the higher price of home ownership for African-Americans. So we tend to be in communities, you know, people live where people they feel comfortable with. I live in a black community in Prince George's County in Maryland. Um, it's near my church. It's near my friends. But my property taxes are just crazy. Tag that with the fact that my home is not appreciating the same as if I were in a white neighborhood. If I picked up my house and moved to a white neighborhood, my house would probably be worth 
probably, if not half, 100% more. I mean, I'm just being real. Um, And I wrote about this and someone said, well, you should just move to a white neighborhood. Well, why do I need to move to a white neighborhood to get what I feel is comfortable for me? So you buy your home, it's not going to appreciate the same way. And so that impacts the equity that you have that you can then pass on to your generation. So it's like all this stuff piled on top of you. And I personally don't even like the way we qualify people for a home anyway. Um, the formulas make sense on paper. You know, what's your gross income? And then let's look at your debt. But none of us, unless you cheat in us, <laughs> IRS, is bringing home our gross income. And so when I help people qualify, when I you know, tell them what I think they should afford a house. I said, forget that gross income number. Look at your net income every month against mm. your debts and family obligations. Because if you live in a black community, oftentimes the funding of the schools is not the same. So many more families are sending their kids to private school. So you dump that onto their budget. And you can see why you have a recipe for people having difficulty holding onto their home or just deciding, I can't afford home ownership if I'm going to do all these other things uh, for my family. And Michelle talked about, you know, uh, less equity to pass on to future generations, but it's also less equity to tap for, say, college education, too, Mm -hmm. or for home improvement loans or the like. So those costs are also borne by um, African-American homebuyers. Absolutely. Well, I want to go to some questions. We actually reached out on social media and got some questions from our listeners. And so, Michelle, the question is, if you can afford to buy a house, and we've talked a lot about whether or not you can afford it and what you can do to afford it, should you buy one now? You know, I always answer that question this way. Homeownership is right for you when it's right for you. There is not a perfect time. So, you know, let's just go back six months or a year when the interest rates were super low. Um, People's like, you got to buy a house right now. But if you don't have that income to stay in that house, because it's not enough to just have a house, can you also save for retirement? Can you Mm -hmm. also save to help send your kids to college without any debt? If you can't do all those things, can you also save for the emergency fund? So all of those things are not lined up. Even if interest rates are 0%, you may not be able to afford a house at that point. People feel like they need to jump in when they're ready. But to me, it's like saying, I can't swim, but should I just go ahead and jump into the pool? Because there's, there's a whole bunch of people, you know, lifeguards there. Well, you may not, they may not get to you. So I just think that you look at your financial situation. And if you can't do it right now or when the rates were low, you wait until you're in the financial position to handle the mortgage. And so what does that mean? That means you may have to make some compromises. Perhaps you can't get your dream house. Maybe you have to you know, look at a less expensive house, look at a different neighborhood, or maybe even move to a different area, different state. So I'm not one of these people that says, you know, once the rates come down, go in there. The housing prices are going to jump in there. Look at your own personal financial situation. And here's the test. Can I get this house and still save for retirement? Can I get this house and have cushion in my budget for financial emergencies? If all of that lines up, then yes, it's okay for you to buy a house. But be careful about who you get your loan with 
Um, because the loan servicer is very important. How are they going to handle any issues that come up so that if you run into some financial situation, you want to be sure that you're with a company that has a history of helping and working with borrowers. These sort of, you know, fly-by-night operations that maybe get their money from a pool of investors and they don't really care about the, the, they just, you know, trying to sell a bunch of loans. You want to be careful about your business relationships, even if it means you pay a little bit more for that security. Now, having said that, we know a lot of the big banks haven't always done what they're supposed to do. But just be careful about who you get your loan with, um, even if it means that you might have to go to someone more established and pay a little bit more. So, Brian, you get the final thoughts. One thing that is on a lot of people's minds is, you know, are we possibly in a housing bubble? Are people going to see prices fall? You can't predict it, but a lot of people are sort of trying to game out like buy now, buy later. You know, I don't know if that's on your mind or, or any final parting gifts for people thinking about buying. Well, you know, I guess I'm going to end where I started, which is um the housing supply problem, the housing underproduction in this country suggests that home prices are not going to drop. They may slow and we may see, and we're starting to see even right now, more inventory on the market. So there are more options, but housing is not becoming any more affordable. So we still are going to have to build more housing as a country, but then also we need to make sure that what we're building satisfies different income levels and we need different housing types. It doesn't have to be as dense as our urban areas, but we're going to need more housing in this country to keep up with population growth. And we're going to have to keep building and find ways to uh, to create home ownership for the next generation. Well, Brian, thank you so much. Thank you. And Michelle, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Michelle Singletary, who writes a syndicated personal finance column for The Washington Post. And she's written books including What to Do with Your Money When Crisis Hits and The 21-Day Financial Fast. And also Brian Green, a writer and vice president of policy advocacy at the National Association of Realtors. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms. I'm host and executive producer Farai Chidea. Nina Spensley is also executive producer. Bianca Martin is our senior producer. Bridget McAllister and Tracy Caldwell are our booking producers. Anoa Shanga, Emily J. Daly, and Steve Lack are our producers. Natina Bean and Emily Ho are our associate producers. Kelsey Kudak is our fact checker. Production and editing services are by Clean Cuts at 3Cs. Today's episode was produced with the help of Lauren Schild and engineered by Adam Runer and Archie Moore. This program is produced with support from the Ford Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you. It is also the last week of our senior producer, Bianca Martin, who is going off to help launch a new show. Bianca, you have been a treasure to work with. And here's a little tribute from the staff to you. Dear Bianca, have such a wonderful journey through journalism. You have done so much for the Our Body Politic team, and I wish you all the best moving ahead. Cheers, Farai. Thank you for your wonderful spirit 
and the leadership, willingness, and joy you've brought to the work. We so look forward to tracking your future and so pleased we could be part of your past. OBP love. Bianca Martin, you are a treasure and a talent, and I cannot wait to hear your next project. Immense gratitude for all of the knowledge and expertise Bianca has brought this team. We're rooting for you in all that you do. Bianca, thanks for the leadership. Thanks for the great vibes. Thanks for the sharing of your knowledge. You're going to be greatly missed. Oh, there are so many things I'm going to miss about Bianca. Um, But most importantly, I think I'll miss the way you lead with kindness, grace, and humor. Oh, it's been a pleasure laughing with you. And I hope you carry that joy with you to your next adventure. Best of luck. A shout out to a wonderful, caring, and enthusiastic senior producer. Bianca, know that you'll be sorely missed by the Our Body Politic team, but wishing you major success on your next exciting opportunity. Good luck. We'll miss you. Bianca, it's Archie. It's been a pleasure working with you. I'm going to miss you, but I know you're going to do amazing things. All the best. Looking forward to seeing what you do next, Bianca. Really appreciate your leadership over the past few weeks. Even though it's been a short time, I've appreciated the way in which that you have shared your knowledge and resources. Hi, Bianca. This is Tracy. Um, I wish you much success in your next venture. Good luck and take care. Bianca, thank you so much for all of your hard work, your lively energy, and wishing you all the best in your next adventure. And most importantly, keep feeling pumpkin. <laughs> 